often vulgar, always explicit, and sometimes funny. Slap box. Slap box. Welcome to the Slapbox Podcast. This is episode 479. I'm your host, Josh Albrecht, coming to you once again from inside the Slapbox penthouse, though it's a little bit different tonight. Switching it up, broadcasting to you from the master bedroom. It's got a higher ceiling. The audio is probably going to sound a bit different, maybe. Hopefully there's not too much echo. I thought uh, when I did a test in here earlier that it didn't sound too bad, so I'm hoping... Hoping it sounds good, but uh, yeah, switching it up just because there's there's a window in here. It's kind of a more of a bright room. There's a more light getting in, although sun's already kind of down, so <laughs> the light doesn't help. But I just enjoyed this room better. I got my gaming chair that I'm sitting in that I, I play tons of COD, rocking out some Call of Duty in this chair. It's the nice uh, gaming chair, it, and surprisingly. I haven't, you know, priced a whole lot of gaming chairs as opposed to office chairs, but I know when I bought this, it was, I don't know, maybe 150 or so off Amazon, and it's a decent chair. I enjoy it. I like the chair. But if you get, like, a nice office chair, man, those things get fucking expensive. You'd think, like, some of these gaming chairs would be more expensive, but I don't know. I have never sat, I guess, in a really expensive office chair, so I don't have anything to compare it to. All I've sit in is really shitty cheap office chairs. They're not pleasant. Uh, but I, I figured I'd record here in the master bedroom since I got my big PC, my gaming PC, the cyber power PC in here with the big monitor and stuff, and it just seemed more convenient to record in here since it's just uh, me here. And, uh, and yeah, so I got that going on. And also, it's uh, if you are a bald white man, with, particularly with a beard it's safe for you to go outside again now it's safe you don't have to worry about getting arrested because Brian Laundrie has been found dead uh, although I guess there's probably still a lot of conspiracy theorists out there that suggest that maybe this this is really Brian Laundrie's skull that was found in the uh, Florida Reserve and no dog the bounty hunter didn't find him so I'm guessing dog's not getting another show out of it or if he does it's probably not going to go very far because uh you know he was unsuccessful at finding brian laundry and it appears that the fbi and local law enforcement were searching in the right place all along um but it's it was interesting watching because like i got into because you know there's the the times we're in you know there's just some not as much going on as like say pre-pandemic days for me to get into so I was like oh yeah and I've always I've always been kind of interested in uh, true crime as uh, a <laughs> I would like to say I've never wanted to actually murder somebody uh, to point that out but I've you know grown up on horror movies and such I had serial killer cards that my cousin gave me I would like to point out as well too I didn't actually purchase them they were given to me but I was like I don't know 12 at the time and uh, but I was already kind of interested. To be to be fair, I would I I wanted to know more. And it uh, but uh, and I I listened through the years to a couple of different true crime podcasts. Sword and Scale was one I listened to quite a bit, which is a pretty good one. I listened to uh, of course Serial. The first two seasons I haven't listened to it any more than that. I guess there's probably more to it than that now. But uh, the first season was really good about following Adnod. Uh, Syed, I believe is the guy's name. Which, uh, from all the information I gather from listening to Serial and from what I've read, it seems like the guy was found guilty of a murder that doesn't seem like he committed. Which is always interesting stuff. Even if it's, you know, I like, I'm interested in that stuff and, or if they did murder somebody. But, uh, Watching all this stuff unravel with this whole uh, Gabby Petito, Brian Laundry stuff. Um, normally, I get into this stuff after, way after this stuff has happened. The people are behind bars or dead, 
and I can find all the information out. But since, I mean, it was all over social media and like anywhere you, and if, I I held out for a little while. It was I didn't really get into it till I guess they found Gabby, and then I was just uh, I've I'm on Instagram a lot, so uh, they both had Instagram pages. And thus led me to kind of going down a rabbit hole. There was a thought for like a day of like, ooh, maybe I'll I'll find a clue that nobody else did. The millions of people that are watching this uh, <laughs> case intently. But no, yeah, yeah, that didn't happen because turns out he was pretty much dead by the time uh, <clears throat> people went looking for him, or so it would seem. Uh, there's, I guess, no. Solid answer to when exactly he died as of yet. But it's very interesting to me to watch many different YouTube channels uh, cover the whole uh, saga case, whatever you want to call it. Uh, And seeing that, well, some of them just completely made up shit. (laughs) And uh, I believe some of them have already been sued over their uh, conspiracy theories or what have you. And then there are some that, you know, were into the facts and trying to just get more. There's a, there's a former cop that's got a really good YouTube channel. And I, I think he's rather new to YouTube. He's a retired New York uh, police detective. And uh, he, Duty Ron is his show. And it was interesting because he has actual people involved with forensics and such, and has had them come on and, and like talk about the process of how they go about those things. And I found that one to be definitely more factual than a lot of the other ones, and to not go towards more of the speculation. Whereas there's some that I, I watched a lot of where the, they had some very out there theories at the time, and they were really convinced that Dog the Bounty Hunter was going to be the uh, the one to take down Brian Laundry. Not uh, which I'm hoping to be the case, an alligator. <laughs> hoping it was an alligator. I don't know that they'll be able to determine what exactly call, uh, killed him since he's just bones now, from what I understand. Um, but uh, hoping it was a gator. Not not a suicide thing. I'm hoping gator. But uh, there was a uh, other podcast though I saw where like they had gone all in on like these conspiracy theories about uh you know the parents helping him out and all this stuff which i mean they obviously didn't report it to the police and he came home alone and they did not contact the petito family when brian shows up without gabby and they the petito family had reached out i mean there, there's some really shitty stuff going on there but uh <laughs> these youtubers to, it was f- interesting watching the day that they found Brian's bones. Like, going up until they uh, actually announced that the DNA, or dental records, I guess, was the first thing that proved that was Brian's uh, remains. And they were still saying, like, up until the the YouTubers, like, up until that moment that they said the dental records matched, they're like, well, they're just saying remains. This could be human remains of anybody <laughs> from, you know, who knows when. And is like partial remains. Maybe he's not dead. And I'm just like right up until the moment. Like we don't. And like meanwhile, the cops had kind of said in their press conference said, hey, it's over. We, 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 but without actually saying they actually have his remains. But uh, I don't know. It was just very interesting to watch the progression of how things happened with uh, the people constantly f- uh, following the story on YouTube and such. And uh, it, could, it some of these channels like exploded because more and more people were wanting to find out information about Gabby Petito uh, and uh, where the hell Brian Laundry is. So, I mean, these channels, just by putting that shit in a thumbnail, getting millions of fucking views... Whether or not they had, some of them had better, a lot better <laughs> uh, stuff than others. And I think we're following more of facts, whereas some were just complete speculation. But it's an, I don't know, it's an interesting thing. And I, I'm sure that there's going to be a Netflix documentary in a good year or two 
about the whole situation. And I think now since turns out Brian was just dead in the Carlton Reserve uh, to begin with when uh, everybody thought he was on the Appalachian Trail and all that, I think that the whole documentary that's going to happen is just going to be mainly focused, much like Don't Fuck With Cats documentary, just the people freaking out on the internet, the internet sleuths that I half-ass took part in. <laughs> uh, and not really. I was kind of like interested for a little bit. I went to the Reddit page a couple of times. Basically, there was like one solid day where, but it, uh, where I was like really trying to look over the Instagram pages and stuff. But I, I definitely did watch my fair share of the YouTube videos on it just to to get in there. But I, I'm imagine the 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 dock is going to be some kind of a train wreck of uh, the wild speculation, and then everybody in the world saying that they saw Brian Laundry somewhere because you know what? There's a lot of bald white dudes out there with beards there's a fuck ton of them there is a real vast <laughs> majority of uh men of of the white guys that look like Brian Laundry basically <laughs> a, uh it's yeah he he had a very plain manila look to him there wasn't uh like his ears and like tattoos were kind of like the distinguishing factors uh so there was all kinds of sightings all kinds of sightings but with uh that out of the way i had said last week i was going to record or not record well, yeah i was going to record early being on a friday night so i could then the next day scare some little children unfortunately i'm recording on saturday night because uh i'm not able to scare small children this weekend it's a damn shame damn shame that is fun fun to do on halloween you know i don't want to just be some creeper any day of the year and only on appropriate times you know like halloween sit out there and uh scare the shit out of them. but uh the old roommates uh jackman and uh, uh tony they were gonna of course have a birthday party for marcellus uh their son uh, Halloween theme party and unfortunately one of the children that rides with them to school tested positive for COVID so now they're in the quarantine zone so having a party at the house doesn't seem you know like the greatest time so we're kind of holding off holding off it's gonna happen apparently at some point I'll get to scare some kids however next weekend though it looks like I'll be going to a I believe it's a costume party. <laughs> it's the day before Halloween. There's a, a friend's, uh, they just got done remodeling their house. They're having a housewarming party. And I believe there are costumes and alcohol. <laughs> There's not much. I didn't actually talk to them about it when I, I did see them, the couple, Thursday night. but And they sent me an invite for it. But I, I don't know a whole lot of details about the the party. But, uh I know there's costumes and alcohol, so that should that should be interesting. They're going to be like the only two I know there, I think. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe there's going to be more people. I'm hoping I know more people there. At least it's a, it's a short distance from here, so I could easily stumble home if I'm unable to drive, but I I can't drink more than like two two drinks these days without just like feeling like I'm going to die. So I don't think uh, drinking and driving is going to be a problem for the... Especially since it's like two blocks away from my house. I could just walk there to begin with. Well, it might be a little bit more than two blocks. It's maybe like <laughs> four blocks or so. It's Still, it's not far. It's down the street. Uh, but uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to you know doing something for Halloween. It's been several years, really, since I've really done a whole lot for Halloween. Like, even before the pandemic days... Like, I was trying to really get into programming and stuff, and that just hasn't really panned out for me so much. But, uh, and I guess even before the programming, I was like, uh, hadn't really done a whole lot because I'd working a lot. And, uh, not really sure when the last time I went to a Halloween party. It's been a while. I mean, I always, with the, 
when I lived at the Slapbox Bunker, when I used to do shows out of there, of course, we we still did the uh, birthday party, so I got to dress up a little bit for that. But I used to do that plus Halloween parties. I mean, I used to really get into Halloween. Uh, it's my favorite holiday, of course. I was looking earlier over uh, 80s horror movies, too, trying to get a see if I could remember some of these films, like see like everybody's like favorite lists from the eighties on the, these horror films. And it definitely, uh, a lot of the movies I've seen were on a lot of these lists. Um, and I don't know that I, I mean, some of the movies I enjoyed, which were, which were really bad. I mean, I watched a lot of really bad fucking movies. <laughs> In the 80s period, horror movies were just fucking all over the place um, in the 80s. It seemed like that was one of the top genres in movies of the 1980s. I mean, that shit was fantastic. One that I'm surprised that, no, I'm not really surprised, but I know there's several that, I mean, a lot of them that I enjoyed were not, didn't make a lot of these lists that I'm looking at online. I didn't see Shocker on there, which was a classic one. There was a guy that uh, was put to death by the electric chair. I think it might have been from, of course, that might be the 90s. That might be early 90s when that came out. No, it was 89. We're cool. 89. My memory served me. It did... Oh shit! Yeah, oh, it was it was another Wes Craven movie, which to me Wes Craven is a fucking master at horror. That dude, fucking great. Um, so shocker, again, <laughs> not. I don't know. I looked over like fucking maybe up to upwards of ten lists of uh, '80s horror movies, and this was not on there. But it was one of my. I wouldn't say favorites, but it was one I definitely enjoyed. Not like a massively uh, popular film. It only grows $16.6 million. I don't know what the uh, budget was, but the plot of it was a news reporter or report shows a victim being pulled away on a stretcher. It is revealed that a serial killer having murdered over 30 people is on the loose in Los Angeles suburb. In a Los Angeles suburb, uh, a television repairman with a pronounced limp named Horace Pinker becomes the prime suspect when the investigative investigating detective, Lieutenant Don Parker, gets too close. Pinker murders Parker's wife, foster daughter, and foster son. However, his other foster son, a college football star named Jonathan develops a strange connection to Pinker through his dreams and leads Parker to Pinker's rundown shop. In a shootout which several officers are killed, Pinker escapes and targets Jonathan's girlfriend, Allison, in retribution. Another dream leads Lieutenant Parker and the police to Pinker, whom they catch in the act of a kidnapping. This time, just as Pinker is about to kill Jonathan, he is arrested. Pinker is quickly convicted and sentenced to die in the electric chair. Prior to his execution, Pinker reveals that Jonathan is in fact his son. Ooh, plot twist. (laughs) And that as a boy, Jonathan had shot him in the knee while trying to stop the murder of his mother. But what they do not realize is that Pinker has made a deal with the devil. (laughs) When executed... He does not die, but instead becomes pure electricity. He is able to possess others to continue his murderous ways. Some of the people who are killed are prison staff and Jonathan's friends. He soon possesses Lieutenant Parker, who uses his strength to fight off Pinker. And Pinker escapes into a TV dish, because of course he does. (laughs) Jonathan and his friends try to find a way to fight him. Jonathan's friends, including Rhino, head to the power station to disable the power. Jonathan, with the aid of Allison's spirit, devises a scheme to bring 
Pinker back into the real world and accidentally discovers that Pinker, as with all energy sources, is bound by the laws of the real world. Jonathan uses the limitation, this limitation to defeat Pinker and traps him inside a television. Pinker threatens Jonathan he will find a way out of his prison. Allison's voice tells Jonathan to take care of himself while Jonathan's neighborhood suffers a blackout caused by his friends blowing out the power main, trapping Pinker in the television. Jonathan goes outside amid all his neighbors, looks up at the sky, agreeing with Allison that they are beautiful. <laughs> I guess the biggest name in the cast would be one... Uh, uh, ooh, Ted Raimi's in it. Not in a big part, uh... Don't believe, but uh, the biggest name I know in there is Mitch Pileggi, who uh, he he was in X Files as Walter Skinner, director Skinner, which you know was around that time. Started right around that time. Oh, Heather Langenkamp's in there. I forgot she was in there. Oh, she's obviously not a big part. Is as victim. <laughs> uh, she was Nancy in. Uh, in Mr. Wes Craven's film, A Nightmare on Elm Street. And she was again in A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors. Two of the best right there. I'm trying to, damn it. Oh, no, no, no. I didn't mean to do that. I totally closed out on Shocker. But uh, holy shit, that was, a, that was a classic fucking movie, man. Shocker was... <laughs> pretty good but I mean if you reading over the synopsis of it I mean it is kind of Wes Craven I think kind of phoned it in on that one I feel like he had a lot of the elements that were in a nightmare in Elm Street you know there was a lot of the stuff very similar in there another Wes Craven goodie is Serpent in the Rainbow which I think I still have on DVD that one was a pretty fantastic one is uh, Bill Pullman if I remember correctly and uh, I believe it takes place in Haiti. And they are taking this uh, <laughs> zombie drug, or, well, people are being buried alive uh, because they, they're they being given this drug to where it appears that they're dead, but they're, almost, they're in a comatose and showing no signs of life. And then people are burying them alive because they think they're dead. And it's, uh, it's good stuff. I like that uh, there's some voodoo stuff going on and and pretty great. I don't think there's any supernatural shit in a lot of like Wes Craven stuff in there. It ends up being just this drug. It's been a while since I watched it, but damn, it's a classic. There's, oh man, this list has got, I'm looking at filmschoolrejects.com, 80s horror movies, and they got some ones that uh, I didn't see on some other lists that... Uh, I really, I'm I'm glad to see on here. Like they got held uh, Friday Thirteenth Part Four. That's a good one. That's got Corey Feldman. Holy shit! I mean, I grew up on loving some Friday Thirteenth. Still super glad that that lawsuit's over and that we could potentially see some more Voorhees in the future. Perhaps another movie, more video games. Who knows? Could be some good shit. And then also on this Hellbound Hellraiser Two which I was a big fan of Hellraiser growing up in the 80s of like the early, basically the first two films. Part three was all right. I like the Bloodline Bloodlines one. Maybe not so much when they go into space in it, but there's some good stuff in the past. There, but Hell, Hellbound, Hellraiser 2, which the first one was very dark. I liked the darkness of it and just the, it's some dark shit and gory. But Hellbound, Hellraiser 2, that one really stepped it up a notch and then some. Uh, let's see what the film school rejects have to say about it. When you think of Hellraiser and its hard, its cadre of sadist gods, you are likely thinking of Hellbound Hellraiser 2. Not to disparage Clive Barker's original masterclass in horny, grand... Uh, not familiar with this word, but... Guignol? Oh, shit. Now I sound like a real idiot. Uh... I don't know what that. <laughs> uh, Grand Guign 
We know. Yeah, I don't know how to pronounce that. And this uh, Wikipedia is not helping me out on that. Guignol. Uh, I imagine, I guess it's French. So it's probably Grand Guignol. Something like that. Um, anyway, I guess that's really unimportant. <laughs> They're really trying to riff loop here. But his initial gory romance doesn't fully indulge in the Cenobite mayhem we always imagine typifying the series. If Pinhead and his posse were aperitifs in the first film, they're the main fucking course <laughs> in a sequel that chooses excess over slow-building terror, and that is not a bad thing. Oh, it is not. People slash themselves with razor blades. Others convincingly wear full-body skin suits. A doctor goes into a Cenobite easy-bake oven and comes out with tentacle knives for hands and the entire climax takes place in a brutalist mc escher-esque labyrinth with an elaborate concrete design countless stairs and an unending sense of scale if that doesn't scream this movie was brought to you by cocaine (laughs) i don't know what does the original hellraiser may have introduced us to barker's incomparable creations but it's hellraiser 2 that turned those creations into enduring fan favorite movie maniacs which that movie, I mean, it is. I can see how the, that was probably amped up with cocaine or something of that nature. It's a holy shit that takes it to another level. And just at the beginning of Hellbound Hellraiser 2, you have, uh, there's this guy work, that works, I guess, at a, a sane asylum. And he's, I guess, into researching the box that is the portal to the realm where the Cenobites are, Pinhead and all, to these Cenobites. And he's, like, researching this thing. And he takes one of these patients from the insane asylum to have that patient open up the box because he wants to open up the portal. And he has gives the guy... Like a night, because this particular patient constantly thinks there's bugs all over him. So he takes him to his house, puts him on this mattress where was the mattress from the original Hellraiser film where somebody was brutally murdered. Uh, And then he gives, like, because this patient, again, thinks there's bugs all over his skin, gives the guy a knife, and he cuts himself all up. And so he's bleeding all over this mattress. Which leads to just, I mean, it gets, it's brutal. And that's like, I feel like that's like right at the beginning of the film. And uh, then the person that was murdered there on the mattress comes back to life, feeding off the blood and body of this, this fella. And then it's the, the woman, I can't remember her name, the character's name, but she comes back to life from this. And uh, it's just goodness. It's just goodness. They got Maximum Overdrive. I didn't see that at all on any of this list. This, this movie is just like cheesy, but I mean, it is horror. It is based off Stephen King. What they have here to say is you can't discuss Maximum Overdrive without talking about cocaine. <laughs> it's a hell of a drug. And apparently the delicacy of choice by the director at the time of the film's making, Stephen King dare not blame his own mind for such a ridiculous, strange, ridiculously strange movie. But let's be real, cure the madman author of his addiction and the sober result would be just as ridiculous. Machines turn on their masters, cars, trucks, vending monstrosities, even the watermelons get on the head smashing. It's 80s excess at its most flagrant and offensive. Bang your head to the ACDC soundtrack, take a big snort, and let it take over. (laughs) It doesn't really get into it much, I guess, the plot of that one, but like aliens basically take over all machines? In this in this movie, but it doesn't make a whole lot is because it's not like computers, it's just like any machine. It's like fucking lawnmowers, like vending machines, like I guess anything with a motor. But it even seems like some things don't have motors that is taking over. I'm unsure as to how it's taking things over, but it can't take over living beings. It's very strange the rules of this movie, and there's. <laughs> What are the the funniest bits? Because, I mean, the movie, you watch it. I mean, it's, I don't know, it'd be hard to get scared at that movie. But there's, like, some very funny moments. 
and there's there's a big montage where because uh, the big thing that's coming after these people tearing fying uh Emilio Estevez and the other uh people in this film uh are the all these vehicles and mainly this big trucker. I don't remember if it was a Mack truck or Peterbilt. It's one of those. It's a big semi. And it looks like the Green Goblin from uh Spider Man. Uh and they are for because like they've been killing people and shit. And the movie primarily takes place at this fucking truck stop, of course. Of course, you know. And uh, eventually these vehicles need to refill. And somehow they force the people to just keep gassing them up. The montage is just of them constantly filling up <laughs> these trucks. And you can see they're just like like they're working so hard you get the impression that they've been doing this for like 14 15 hours and uh it's oh, just so bad so bad and they're just like oh i'm dying i'm dying i can't i can't possibly gas up another tank this is the hardest work i've ever done in my life <laughs> but it's just so funny like these the aliens whatever is taking control of things can take over these vehicles, but they can't seem to fill themselves up. Like there's, there's very strange things of what they can do, what they can't do. Very weird. Ooh, silver bullets on here. That's a classic from 1985. That's a fantastic one. You know, it's just so weird. Like when I I grew up, I mean, I I watched a lot of these films. I was born in '81. So, I mean, I was born when a lot of these were, like, coming out. And I watched a lot of these films just throughout my childhood. But, I mean, at a very early age, I was watching stuff. Here's The Lost Boys. That's another classic, of course. But that one's, like, pretty well known. Uh, This one does have more. I'm kind of liking this list more because there's a lot more that I've seen that are kind of weirder. But then you've also got, like, Child's Play, which... Most people, I'm sure, are aware of Child's Play, which I did love the original. When that came out, the sequel is pretty good, too. They go to the factory, I believe, in that one, where they build the toys, the good guy dolls. That first one's pretty great, though. I never did see the Mark Hamill reboot one, which it was like an android. I don't know how I feel about that. Uh, There's a little shop of horrors. I feel like that shouldn't be on here. That's more of a musical comedy. I mean, it was a movie. There is horror to it. The, the Blob, that that was the uh, 80s remake, of course. The original one was from the 60s or so. But The Blob from the 80s, that was good stuff. It's good stuff. Uh, Killer Clowns from Outer Space, they, they put that in there. I mean, I guess that is a horror movie, but it's another one that's really just kind of comedy. Like they have to say here, the 80s are littered with films built on an absurd premise. Get a little... Get a title that screams hilarity and wraps wrap a plot around it. I rented plenty of dumbass movies based on gag titles, and more often than not, they were never as clever as you imagined. Killer Clowns from Outer Space gets a chuckle out of the title, but then it delivers on every ounce of its preposterous concept. The Chiodo brothers, Charles, Edward, and Stephen, lean heavily into sincerity and achieve their giggles from their characters' staunch seriousness. Killer Clowns with cotton candy ray guns, they ain't no joke. And they'll happily make your insides your outsides and jam their fist into your newly formed puppet body. Gross, genius, hilarious, still somehow scary. I don't know, it's scary. Seems like maybe a bit of a stretch there. Maybe. I've seen that movie a lot. I don't remember really getting scared, even as a child. Was, uh, <laughs> There's uh, Evil Dead, is, of course, on this list, which has been on like every list, which is good. It should be on the list. Evil Dead 2 oh, also, which is basically a remake of Evil Dead 1, but with a lot better, you know, a way higher budget. And then there, oh, Nightmare on Elm Street 3 right here. Dream Warriors, number 22 on the list, which was fantastic. And they have to say here, uh, Heather Langenkamp made her first return to Elm Street with the third film in the series, Dream Warriors. Nancy, now an intern therapist visits suicidal teens at Weston Hills Psychiatric Hospital, understanding these teens aren't trying to take their own lives, but are instead being tormented while they sleep by Freddy Krueger. Nancy helps them take back their dreams and defeat the Springwood Slasher. 
Uh, oh man, this that was a good one. You had uh, I'm trying to think. Uh, there was there was some good shit in there. You had, of course, uh, that was the first one, which there was and two or three of them. I know the next one had a few of the characters from Part Three, but you had the teenagers, and of course, uh, Dream Warriors had the the superpowers in their dreams. Like the guy in the wheelchair in his dreams would become a wizard, didn't need the wheelchair anymore. Uh, you had the strong man, like in his dreams, he was could he was just super strong. Then you had the I remember the drug addict girl was just. I mean, she didn't really have a superpowers. She just was like part of a gang <laughs> in her dreams. Like she carried a switchblade, had spikes, and then Freddy stuck her with needles when he killed her, which I don't remember. She might have died in part four. I know she was, maybe it was in part three. She might I think she did die in part three, but he gave her with like needles. He's like, boom, like shooting her up with needles. But uh, ooh, that one like part three, I think is also because P- Patricia Arquette is in there. That was like her first big role in a movie. But uh, one of my favorite parts about part three is like Freddy's head coming out like a big snake, and you know, he's trying to like uh, devour Patricia Arquette, and then that's when she pulls Nancy into the dream. That part's really good. I enjoy that much, very much. Um. They've got quite a few movies on here that I haven't seen. And then there's, <laughs> I'm pretty sure I've seen this one. There's number 18, the slumber party massacre. I feel like I did watch that. Is that, oh, is that the guy, a Fox? I feel like it is. Uh, the slumber party massacre is a bit of an anomaly originally conceived as a parody by writer Rita Mae Brown, and then reworked into a straight up slasher directorial debut for Amy Holden Jones who turned down an offer from Steven Spielberg to edit E.T. in order to make this movie. Wow, I feel like she might have made a mistake there. Uh, it occupies an interesting place in its subgenre. It retains a lot of the humor with some world-class visual gags like the gals eating pizza off a dead delivery boy's body and a keen self-awareness that exists throughout. It also got a bounty bountiful supply of fake blood, jubilant thrills, and a genuinely frightening killer. Indeed, the cherry on top is that the baddie isn't some mythologized or supernatural being. He's just a dude with a drill and a hatred of women. Jones's film knows what's scary, what's scary as well as it knows how to subvert those scares all around a masterwork in cinema, slasher cinema. Which, Pretty sure I saw that movie back in the day, but I'm saying I saw it in like the 80s or maybe early 90s. The movie came out in 82, so I would have been one years old. I don't think I saw it when it first came out. I know this poster. This poster is pretty great. There was a sequel as well. I love those posters. Those posters are fucking great. Like the poster's got the drill coming out of a fucking pizza, which just looks nice. There's... (laughs) Like the girl, one girl on a phone, with the, where there's one shot where the girls are like uh, laying on the floor in bikinis, with, and then the guy is standing above them with a very long drill, very long drill. There's uh, only got three stars on IMDb, only three stars. That that can't be Viv Gay Fox. I was seeing what year it is. She would have been too young, I would think. At that point, but the the still look like I guess that isn't her. None of these names are really jumping out at me as any of the actresses here. Little before, before uh, she would have been starring in films. But that one shot really did look like her. Maybe it was in part two. What was part two about? <laughs> uh, part two looks like shit. I don't think she's in that either. <laughs> it looks worse than the first first one. It is very. It's a guy with a guitar and a drill coming out of the top of the guitar. It, very 80s looking, though. Very 80s looking. Um, fucking classic shit, though. Uh, yeah, I saw that, but I don't really remember it. And for some strange reason, I think I talked about this last week, the Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, which is the only Halloween movie to not feature 
Michael Myers is pretty high on this list. A lot of people seem to love that one. I don't remember it a whole lot. I know that there was some things to do with this factory that produced these Halloween masks, and I guess they were making people kill people or something. Oh, shit. Uh, but there's... A lot of people seem to really enjoy that one. Uh, and then this next one, this is one I, I'm surprised I didn't see any other list. On number 16 here, House. There was, I guess, like a tr- almost like a trilogy. I know there's several, maybe even more than that. But uh, here, the I'll give their little description here. Picture the setup. After his aunt commits suicide, a traumatized Vietnam vet struggling to write his memoir moves into her lavish Victorian home. After settling in and meeting his kooky new neighbors, the veteran finds himself haunted not only by the memory of his missing son, whose disappearance remains unsolved, but the specters of war he long thought dormant that threatened to break the boundaries of the physical world in an onslaught of psychoplasmic rage. Sounds like it could be directed by Ari Aster or Natalie Erica James, right? No. This is Sean S. Cunningham's Wacky Horror Comedy House. Cunningham himself has said that his loose grip on the tone of the series is what caused the franchise to be so uneven, but its clashing serio playfulness is what makes the film so distinct amidst the rubber-suited monster gags George Went and the Funhouse of Leaves-style eldritch location. Cunningham devotes large stretches of the film to Nam flashbacks that build considerable empathy towards lead William Cat, whose emotional rawness grounds a film that's largely fancy-free. If House was a brand-new movie produced today with that exact same script, I have no doubt it would it'd be a welcome, humorous addition to the current crop of prestige horror. Which I'm going to say those House films were pretty fucking great. Pretty fucking great. George Went was good stuff. I mean, he was Norm in Cheers. And uh, on Fly, the 86 version. Is on here as well. Aliens makes a lot. I think of that it was more as action, whereas the first Alien film, I consider that, of course, horror. But the Aliens was more of action to me. Like that's like that's on like all. I haven't seen Alien on any of these lists, but Aliens all over. Poltergeist is pretty high up here on number nine. Uh, Nightmare on Elm Street gets number seven. That one's total. Fantastic. And Gremlins is really high up on this one. Number five. Hellraiser, the OG, the original. Number four. I mean, I guess I get, I'm cool with that. American Werewolf in London at number three. Reanimator for number two, which I haven't seen that since probably the 80s. I don't remember it so well. And The Thing is uh, number one there, which uh, John Carpenter's The Thing. Uh, that's good stuff. The Thing. It's just so. Uh, I used to just watch so much fucking horror movies. I mean, I I watched movies nonstop, but there was definitely a, a a special kind of love for horror movies. I mean, I watched Star Wars like <laughs> nonstop as well. But there was uh, back then there were only three of them, so you could only watch three movies so much. And I watched a lot of sci-fi as well, but the, those horror movies, man, shit. A lot of love for the just the really cheesy bad ones. I didn't see. There's other ones I didn't see like on those lists at all. I didn't see Ghoulies, which is a classic one. You got like the little creatures coming out of the toilet. There was several of those films, the Critters movies, which were another kind of comedy horror type thing, not real scary. Uh, Chud wasn't on there. Uh, man, there was a lot of good ones. I'm thinking about movies. I did. Uh, it was weird the other night. Um, I was at home watching Sopranos, I believe, when this happened. But I got alert on my phone. Alec Baldwin actually accidentally shot and killed a woman. I was like, "Whoa, what?" <laughs> really shocking. It was like, and then I was message, messaging Shelly about it, but uh, I'm sure everybody's heard this story by now. I mean, it's all over. Uh, but apparently, they uh, thought the gun had blanks in it, and it must have had a live rounds. Somebody fucked up, and uh, 
gave Alec Baldwin the go-ahead to start firing this gun for the scene, and he shot this and killed the cinematographer and also wounded the director, uh, which immediately reminded me of uh, The Crow, uh, when it came, which came out, I want to say, like 93 or so. Um, but, uh, that, the, uh, see, like, get some details on the crow, what exactly happened. On the crow, Brandon Lee, who's the, uh, son of, uh, oh, it's weird, Brandon Lee has his own Twitter page, and he was dead long before Twitter. Uh, but he was the son of the late, great Bruce Lee. And when he filmed The Crow, which I feel like when they filmed that, it was like one that must have been uh, the last scenes that was filmed in the movie. Um, let's see what Wikipedia has to say about it on his death. But there was it was similar to what happened here with the, the Alec Baldwin stuff. Where, man, that's got a fucking, like, I don't know how you ever get over the guilt of like you know Alec Baldwin's gonna just that's, I'm sure that's gonna probably destroy him <laughs> knowing that he fucking killed this woman she was like 42 43 uh, like an up and comer as far as like cinematography goes from what I understand anyway uh, I love the movie The Crow and when because like Brandon Lee died right before him like I was interested in the story anyway and it sounded like a cool thing. Like I don't I feel like it the movie ended up being much bigger because of the fact that he died during the making of it. <laughs> yeah, but I feel like it would have been a, like a big movie anyway, and I think he would have gone on to be like a really big action star had he not uh died. I'm sure he would have done more at least a few more like big movies after The Crow. I mean shit, there probably would have cuz that was started off a graphic novel and like a it would change. The crow would take over different people and stuff. I don't know that he would have been in another one. Definitely, I feel like the other crow movies probably would have been better, or maybe not. I don't know. The other ones I never really bothered to watch. But this is what Wikipedia has to say about his death. On March 31st of 93, because 93 when it was filmed, uh, Lee was filming a scene in The Crow where his character is shot and killed by thugs. In the scene, Lee's character walks into his apartment and discovers his fiance being beaten and raped, and a thug played by actor Michael Assis fires a Smith & Wesson model uh, 44 Magnum revolver at Lee's character as he walks into the room. Shit, I thought... See, now I thought it was a different shot. I thought it was when he was on the table of the boardroom or whatever getting shot. Uh, I thought that was I always thought that was the the scene but I guess not according to this is a, this is a early in the film but it must have been one of the last things they filmed but uh, in the film shoot preceding the fatal scene the prop gun which was a real revolver was loaded with improperly made dummy rounds improvised from live cartridges that had the powder charges removed by the special effects crew so in close-ups, the revolver would show normal-looking ammunition. However, the crew neglected to remove the primers from the cartridges. And at some point before the fatal event, one of the rounds had been fired. Although there were no powder charges, the energy from the ignited primer was enough to separate the bullet from the casing and push it partway into the gun barrel where it got stuck. A dangerous condition known as a squib load. During the fatal scene, which called for the revolver to be fired at Lee from a distance of uh, 3.6 to 4.5 meters, uh, so about 12 to 15 feet, the dummy uh, cartridges were replaced with blank rounds, which contained a powder charge and the primer, but no solid bullet, allowing the gun to be fired with sound and flash effects without the risk of an actual projectile. However, the gun was not properly checked and cleared before the blank was fired. The dummy bullet previously lodged in the barrel was then propelled forward by the blank's propellant and shot out of the 
the muzzle with almost the same force as if the round were live, striking Lee in the abdomen. After Massey pulled the trigger and shot Lee, Lee fell backwards instead of forwards as he was supposed to. When the director said cut, Lee did not stand up, and the crew thought he was either still acting or kidding around. Jeff Imeda, who immediately checked Lee, noticed something wrong when he came close and noted Lee was unconscious and breathing heavily. Medic Clyde Basie went over and shook Lee to see if he was dazed by hitting his head during the fall, but he did not think Lee had been shot since there was no visible bleeding. Basie took Lee's pulse, which was regular, but within two or three minutes it slowed down dramatically and stopped. Lee was rushed to New Hanover Regional Medical Center in Wilmington, North Carolina. Attempts to save him were unsuccessful after six hours of emergency surgery. Lee was pronounced dead at 1.03 p.m., March 31st of 93. He was only 28 years old. The shooting was ruled an accident due to negligence. Lee's death led to the reemergence of conspiracy theories surrounding his father's similarly early death. Lee was buried next to his father at Lakeview Cemetery in Seattle, Washington. Among the attendees were Keefler Sutherland, Lou Diamond Phillips, David Hasselhoff, Steven Seagal, David Carradine, and Melissa Etheridge. In August of 93, Lee's mother, Linda Lee Caldwell, or Cadwell, filed a lawsuit against the filmmakers alleging negligence of the death of her son. The suit was settled two months later. Undisclosed terms. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, I, I, I was always thinking it was the scene near the end where it was a bunch of people shooting him. But, uh, you know, that happened before the internet was so full of details back in the days of like web crawler and stuff. Um, I don't remember how many scenes they had to film without. Uh, how many scenes? I don't know how many scenes they I know that they let's see I know he's killed by the prop gun I don't need the news okay here's this is what Looper has to say about how they finished it I know that they weren't done filming the movie when uh when he died uh, Looper.com here says uh Brandon Lee of course late son of Bruce Lee uh just becoming beginning to come into his own his silver screen talent when his life was cut tragically short 28 uh yeah freak accident do 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 uh see the film starred Lee as Eric Draven who along with his girlfriend Shelley is murdered in his apartment by a group of thugs on the night before Halloween Devil's Night in Detroit a year after the incident guided by a crow Eric returns to the land a living crawling out of his grave to track down and exact bloody revenge on those responsible. Lee had only a few days' work left on the film when he reported to the set shortly after midnight on March 31st, and which we already uh, covered the whole shooting part. Um, let's see here. There is a... Uh, I mean, it's going to a bit more detail on this this site about it um ooh, it's, yeah it says early digital trickery was used to help finish the crow after a great deal of soul searching Proyas and the rest of the crow's cast and crew arrived at the conclusion that lee would have insisted that they finish the film with most of the actor scenes completed it was up to special effects house dream quest to fill in the blanks they accomplished in a number of ways for the scene in which a newly returned from the grave Eric returns to his old apartment for example unused footage of Lee was used with the actor's image digitally composited into a shot of the apartment set for a few other key images however the effects technicians turned to techniques that were in 93 ridiculously cutting edge Proyas uh, brought in a relatively green stunt performer by the name of Chad Staleski, uh, 
who had been good friends with Lee and had a similar build for a handful of scenes, including the one in which Eric sports his eerie makeup for the first time approaching his window as lightning briefly illuminates the room. Stileski uh, stood in for Lee during shooting, then DreamQuest used previously captured footage of Lee to digitally graph the actor's face on Stileski's body, resulting shots uh, certainly benefit from their brevity and from the darkness in which they were shot, but even today the effect holds up remarkably well. The Crow was, of course, dedicated to Lee's memory, and it had a modestly successful theatrical run before developing a massive cult following upon its home video release, it's a great flick and a fitting tribute to a talent lost far too soon, but according to Stoleski, its legacy goes quite a bit beyond that, uh, which has led to a lot more safeguards in shooting scenes during uh, movies and stuff, which is what it gets into here, which is a good part of uh, his legacy here. Well, holy shit, great fucking film. I, uh, I fucking loved Love that movie a lot. Uh, like there is a, oh shit. It's got more uh, interesting things about the crow, which man, like the soundtrack of that too was like all the biggest like grunge. Well, there was a lot of good grunge. I mean, I also had like the cure on there and stuff. Fucking Henry Rollins was on there. Great fucking soundtrack. That came out before. I think they released that before the movie, and I had that soundtrack, and I listened to that soundtrack all the fucking time. But holy hell, I mean that, I I love that movie. I saw that in the theater when it came out like three or four times at least, easy. It was a bunch of times it seemed. Um, I had it on VHS, and I fucking <laughs> over and over again watched that movie. Uh, there's that great Nine Inch Nails song on there too. Uh, Dead Souls, I think, is what that one's called, where he uh sampled a basketball bouncing and uses that for the drum beat. I fucking love that. That's so good. (laughs) But uh, here it says, uh, it continues on this Looper article, the Alex Proyas film adaptation of The Crows, one of the most beloved cult hits of all time. The film has become a legend, and not just because of the tragic death of Brandon Lee, uh, the Crow was meant to be the breakout role for Lee and would become the young actor's only mainstream hit following an onset accidental shooting that cost his life. movie was a brave uh, gothic tale, unlike anything moviegoers had seen before, while also being one of the first serious adaptations of a comic book property, though films like Blade and X-Men deservedly get a lot of credit for establishing the genre. The Crow started blazing those trails several years earlier, but for all its success, it very nearly turned out very different. <laughs> so what's the secret story behind the cult hit? According to this article, it was almost a musical starring Michael Jackson. <laughs> That's crazy. Uh, there's a reason The Crow remains a cult hit all these years later. The movie is fantastic, telling a timeless story that's as relevant now as it was 20 years ago. But it uh, would it have had such a lasting impact if it had been a straight-up musical starring the King of Pop? We almost found out. As Crow creator James Obar revealed in a DVD special feature for the film, Obar said a studio exec recommended singing or signing Michael Jackson for the role while it was in development, and he literally laughed in his face at the idea. That's good. <laughs> Not surprisingly, the experience... So- soured Obar on the entire Hollywood experience. Here's what he said about the idea on DVD. That's how it is in Hollywood. It's like there's a beautiful tree and every dog that comes by has to piss on it. (laughs) As Obar alludes, this sounds like a pretty terrible idea, but MJ did pull off Thriller, so who knows? Nah, never mind. This was almost certainly a bad idea, which I'm going to say was a fucking horrible idea. (laughs) Uh, I guess, yeah, it keeps going more into some stuff, but uh, I feel like there's already saying stuff we already know. I guess this is multiple articles that they've written on. Uh, I guess many looper articles going on here about the stuff. But yeah, holy shit, that movie was fucking great. Such I'm going to have to watch that movie again. It's a good Halloween movie. Good Halloween movie. I mean, he's, he comes back from the dead and like to vengeance you know to get vengeance on these people killing himself and his girlfriend 
Holy shit, such a good, such a good movie. I feel like they could do The Crow and then maybe, like, have a female lead this time. I don't know who they, they would pick for the female lead. But there could be, I mean, you could do, I just hope it wouldn't be, like, a complete rehash of the original Crow movie. Because the, in the graphic novel in which it started, you know, it was these other people that would get it, which I, I've only read, like, the, I guess, the original graphic novel which is more of where that film came from. I don't know how many there are actually on that, but uh, I imagine there's some good source material for other stuff. Like the crow can inhabit anybody, and it's like out for vengeance. And there could be all kinds of good vengeance tales. You know, I was just watching one earlier, good vengeance tales, uh, well, I was watching the films that made us on Netflix, the newer season they put out, and they were talking about RoboCop, which is a great vengeance tale where he, you know, he goes after Clarence Boddicker for killing him. And in the end, he finds out Dick Jones was behind it. OCP. Because Clarence Boddicker works for Dick Jones, and Dick Jones is OCP. <laughs> that movie's so fantastic, too. That movie almost didn't, wasn't released. It was very difficult for it to get released. Paul Verhoeven really liked the gore, man. Really liked the gore. And when they fucking destroy and kill Murphy before he's turned into RoboCop, it's a gory scene the way it was released. Apparently there was more to it originally to where the, they were going to release this movie with anything less than an X rating unless they did some major editing. From what I understand, it wasn't a lot of editing they did. But according to the films that made us, which I'd already known, like some kind of the history behind it, but there was a, and I'd heard a little bit about this, but apparently at the screening, the original screening they did where the film was unedited, they had like 10 people walk out (laughs) during like that, that scene, which is fucking brutal, man. But there was like some humor to it. Like give the man a hand and then bam, give the man a hand, shoots his fucking hand off and then it. Ends it with just blowing a hole in his head. It's fucking brutal. But uh, <laughs> I, can't, I can't imagine. I would like to see the unedited version. Just to see if there's really that big of a difference. Because they said once they took out this few seconds or whatever it was out of that scene. I guess of several other scenes. That when they rescreened it, only one person walked up. <laughs> Which I feel like. You know, if the, you're only going off two screenings, you're not giving it a big enough sample audience that could like could be just more. There was a people people in that second uh, screening. There was just more. They had seen more shit. You know, they had that thousand yard stare. They weren't going to be turned off by this. There was just more. Uh, you know, people that hadn't seen gruesome in the first one. Then again, maybe not. I don't know. I'll never know if I don't see that extra footage. I don't know if you can find that footage on like a director's cut or something. Knowing Paul Verhoeven, it could have gotten real fucking bad. Like real fucking bad. (laughs) Paul Verhoeven, man, he made some great masterpieces back then, like fucking Total Recall and such. Such goodness. But uh, yeah, I'm going to just rant all day about this. Um, I was thinking if there's anything else really ahead. Halloween wise to talk about. I mean, I guess I'm recording one more before Halloween and I'll be posting on Halloween day. So I, I, I'll have to really prep for some stuff. Hopefully next week to, to talk about some, some real Halloween shit. Maybe some, uh, maybe I'll find some more, uh, true crime stuff. I was watching some stuff earlier and I, I need to research this maybe. As I do follow the YouTube channel infographics on YouTube, of course, uh, there's most of this channel. <laughs> I don't even remember how it ended up on my feed. Like I, I don't remember really searching out a whole lot of stuff about murderers on YouTube, but it certainly sends me a lot of stuff on it. Infographics seems to be one of those things, which they got stuff on more than just murderers, but it seems like the majority of the stuff they talk about is like serial killers, but it's all animated <laughs> and uh, they spent some time animating it. There was one I was watching earlier where it was a guy, a German fellow, and this is, I guess, in the early 1900s. This is maybe even before World War One. 
or around World War One. I'm not really sure what the. I mean, it was like early 1900s, I think. But the guy, I'm not really. I don't recall what they uh, nicknamed him, but he was living in Berlin. And everybody in Berlin at this point in time was uh, having a rough life. Like, uh, it was hard to afford things just to, you know, get food and stuff. And this guy, I guess, started out or uh, killed, I guess, majority. I mean, it was all women from my understanding he was killing. But he would, uh, like many serial killers, go after people that aren't going to be investigated much. Like, uh, he was killing a lot of prostitutes. Apparently, he killed more than just prostitutes. But usually when that happens, prostitutes go missing. People don't ask that many questions, unfortunately. You know, like the, if they find a dead prostitute, it's and she doesn't have any family and stuff. A lot of times it, it doesn't really get a whole lot of attention. Much like with Jack the Ripper. And, uh, I mean, <laughs> I guess that story got, like, really big in the 1800s. But, uh, <clears throat> and it's really famous now because they never caught the guy. Um, maybe had he not murdered prostitutes, they would have found out who did it. Uh, but, uh, this German fellow was killing people and then selling their meat. Though, according to this infographic show, it was, uh, there's not a whole lot of evidence, I guess, to him selling it to, like, local shops and stuff but neighbors at least had claimed that they had gotten meat from him and he apparently admitted to murdering 20 people but cops think he might have murdered somewhere upwards of 50 to 100 because they kept at the time he was doing this shit it they were saying almost like on a daily basis they were finding body parts in like uh, local canals and shit And from what the the neighbors had said, that he constantly had women coming to his apartment, like they were, he was inviting women up. At the time, it was hard to find a place to stay or like food at the time, and he took advantage. Well, apparently, a lot of women. But I don't know. Maybe I'll find some more stories about shit like that. Do some. I don't know something ghoulish for uh, Halloween. Or, you know, talk about random shit that has nothing to do with Halloween. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, that, I guess I'm good now. So, uh, as always, that is a kid in a wheelchair, not a trash can.